pain too many families of color have experienced. We can't just sit around and just watch people being killed. It doesn't matter what color you are, but we shouldn't be so comfortable with watching people being killed. And that pain and suffering is felt beyond families directly impacted. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. He just was like a, a person that everybody loved around the community. He, he just knew how to make people feel better. Well into communities across the country who see themselves repeatedly in videos where people of color die at the hands of law enforcement. I never imagined this is what was gonna happen. I just thought maybe he was being arrested. On TV, we only get a few minutes to share each story, but here we get to tell you all the details about stories that are important to greater Cincinnati. I'm Stephen Albritton and this is WLWT News 5 Beyond the Studio. You just heard the voices of the mother of Trayvon Martin, the brother of George Floyd, and the mother of Dante Wright. There are many others like them, names synonymous with being killed at the hands of police, often with video playing out their final moments for the world to see. Today on the pod, we dive into the trauma events like this bring to communities of color and beyond. We speak with an expert in the field on how to cope and talk about moments like this and a man known throughout Cincinnati with a unique ear of what's going on in the community. First up, Reverend Peterson Mingo, a community activist who recounts his own run-ins with police and where we go from here. Reverend, we, we're talking about, you know, basically trauma and, and the experience that, you know, people of color have had to deal with over and over again with uh, these police-involved shootings. You know, from what you've seen, from the people you talk to, from, uh, you know, your experiences working with people in the community, you know, when things like George Floyd come up, when things like the trial for Derek Chauvin come up, you know, what, what's been the response from the community? Well, a lot of people think there's not going to be too much of a change. Now, I know that here in Cincinnati, uh, the way policing is done has definitely changed. I've seen it change over the years. Uh, but it hasn't changed people, okay? Uh, the situation might change. But then the underlying cause uh, of these, these problems is still there. Sooner or later, what you are is going to show up. Uh, you can fool people, but it, it's up in your conversation, your actions, and whatever. Uh, that situation, you know, in, in Minnesota is ridiculous, you know. Uh, young lady, how long has she been on the force? 26 years, I believe, or something of that nature. And then she's in a situation where she reaches for her taser, she says, and gets her gun. Now, if you look at basically how police officers wear uh, their guns and their tasers, the taser is usually not near the gun. So she would have had to basically use her other hand to get the taser out and put it in her right hand. And so uh, things like this keep happening, such as the traffic stop uh, in Virginia. Uh, with the African-American military officer and the way he was treated. And you can just hear the, the, the yelling, the screaming of an officer refusing to give him an explanation as to why he was pulled over. Uh, I don't think there's too many uh, African-American males in Cincinnati who basically get nervous when they see the police pull behind them, whether there's an infraction or not. They know how this thing can turn out. You know, with with everything that's happening, is there a feeling of hope or is there a feeling of hopelessness when we continually see these things happen? We continually you know, see trials happen. And in the past, 
I mean, people have made arguments that justice hasn't been served in so many cases. I guess what, what's what's the feeling of the community and somebody in your position when you know people of color go through this trauma over and over again? Well, I guess what, what's that feeling? Where is it headed? How's it changed? Well, it's, it's, some people feel but that's that's just how uh, we do business. Plain and simple. It is not going to change. Don't put yourself in a position uh, where you can basically uh, end up a victim. And that what we have to do as a community, we have to stand together. We, we can't have anyone saying, oh, this is not how a lot of people are in denial. And that's a bad place to be because we see things constantly uh, on the streets. We see constantly things on on TV, the way policing used to be done. Uh, when I worked with our serve, we would have call ins. And in one call in particular, I remember Chief Stryker uh, was there at the uh, call in. He stood up and surprised everyone in the room by apologizing to the young men who were there who had records, somewhat still incarcerated. He apologized to them the way policing had been done in Cincinnati, and he promised there would be a change. And there has been a change. But for him to admit in front of, what, 50, 60 people that policing in Cincinnati was not what it should have been, especially in regards to minorities. For him to get up there and admit that and then say, but it's going to change, and it did change. It did change the collaborative agreement. Uh, everything that's going on now uh, has shown that there's been a change. And the violence across this country, uh, it's a miracle that so many other people haven't been injured, haven't been killed, because whew, uh, if you're a police officer, you're, you're on pins and needles. You're on pins and needles. And sometimes that needs uh, to be done. Basically, let you realize, hey, I can't do this. I can't say this. I can't do this. These are people that basically, you know, I'm, I'm serving. And that's what basically a police officer is for, to protect and to serve. Okay? Mm -hmm. And when someone's pulled over uh, and made basically to uh, get out of the car for no cause, uh, handcuffed while the car is first. And then there's a presumption that he was doing something if he looks suspicious. How do you look suspicious? You know? <laughs> and so a lot of people are on edge. They don't think there's going to be too much of change. They're waiting to hear the verdict. And when they hear that verdict, there's going to be confirmation to some. They're going to be saying, well, what do you expect? We knew this was going to happen. Uh, we tell our children and that if you stop by the police, please comply with everything they tell you to do. Uh, one of my sons, some years ago, uh, he was driving uh, my wife's car. He got stopped. And we'd already told him, you get stopped, if you're anywhere near Evanston, call us. And so he called us on the cell phone. We got over there right quick. It, it stopped them from towing the car uh, because basically he didn't have his license on him. Uh, it kind of calmed him down. And he had a young lady with him. And at the time, you know, sometimes we we, we got that sense of uh, bravado. We, we can't uh, humble ourselves. And so it, it kind of cooled that situation off. And the police officers that responded, they knew me. And so that helped out a whole lot also. But what if they hadn't known me? What if this hadn't been my son? What would have happened uh, to that young man? Because he was ready to fight. Even knowing the things that I taught him and told him, he was still ready, you know, to fight for 
people who live in a community of color, people who are of color, how do they cope moving forward? How do they almost get rid of, if they have that feeling of hopelessness, how do they, you know, just continue to exist when we continue to see situations like this? It's going to take some time. It's definitely going to take some time. Uh, whenever there's a healing, it takes time. Uh, people's ideas have to change. The way they see things have to change. Uh, the way how they feel definitely needs uh, to change. Um, myself, I was driving home the other day. I was telling my wife about it. Uh, police car turned the corner down the bottom of the hill. I parked. He parked. I walked up on the porch, looked down the street, went in my front door. As soon as I closed the door, then he drove up the street and went up the hill. Evidently, he didn't think I lived where, lived where I lived. And so they gave me a little feeling of uneasiness. You know? uh, a lot of people know me, but still there are some who don't. And he was wondering, you know, hey, you know, who is this guy? Uh, and what's he doing here? Is he cruising through the neighborhood? Is he just, you know, uh, whatever. But it made me feel a little bit uneasy to see him stop at the bottom of the hill. I go in the house, and about 10 seconds after go in the house, then he drives up the street real slow, you know, checks the license, you know, you're running the license, then they run up up the hill. And so there's so many times uh, when we're basically, we're victimized just because of who we are and what we are. And we're not given the benefit of doubt in so many places. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, Dr. Danielle Johnson with the Lindner Center of Hope, an in-depth conversation on how we all can approach this difficult subject. Accuracy. It matters in everything you do. Your GPS needs to be accurate. Take a left on third. Your taxes need to be accurate. And your dentist needs to be accurate. You choose accuracy every day. And for an accurate forecast, choose WLWT Weather. It's the only forecast in Cincinnati independently certified most accurate. Nine years in a row and counting. Accuracy does matter. Choose accuracy. Choose WLWT Weather. Joining us now on the Beyond the Studio podcast, Dr. Danielle Johnson. She's a physician in psychiatry with the Linder Center of Hope. And we are talking about the effects of trauma um, that can play out within families, within people, specifically with what we are seeing on TV these days, particularly with interactions with police, with black men and women. Uh, we can talk about George Floyd. We can talk about Dante Wright just in the last week or so and so many others. So uh, Dr. Johnson, kind of take us through what type of effects trauma and particularly what we're seeing over and over, uh, can what kind of effects can that have on people? Yeah, so every exposure to these events does cause a trauma response, um, especially with for example, with the trial going on right now, Derek Chauvin's trial, and then having the shooting in the same city of Dante. So same city, same police department, and then during the trial. So the people in that city in particular are very traumatized that this is happening in their city again. So not only during the trial is everyone being re-traumatized. So every news story about the trial, every social media feed, every time you're reading about the trial, basically it's kind of like reliving last summer all over again. 
So you're, you know, you recall kind of what you felt when you heard about it, where you were, when you first saw the video, if you saw the video, um, if you heard the audio, if you saw still photos, all those memories and feelings come back to you. The same feelings of sadness, of anger, of hurt, all of that comes back. It's almost like feeling it all over again. And then every re-exposure, you know, you think back to all the protests, you might think about, you know, all the negative news coverage, the political rhetoric, um, you know, if you had friends and family that you didn't disagree or that you didn't agree with things about, um, you know, thinking about those arguments and maybe even some severed relationships because of everything that happened over the past year. So all of that is coming back every time there is exposure to this. And then, you know, when there's another shooting or, you know, whether it results in a death or just an injury, um, you know, it, it's a recollection. You think about all of them, you know, you think about Philando Castile, you think about Tamir Rice, you know, you just think of each one and each one that didn't get justice. And it's, it's very traumatic every time it happens. You know, you mentioned the names that come up and, you know, you hear, you know, I think of Trayvon Martin immediately once you name, right. you know, uh, Tamir Rice. So how do people go about coping the proper way? Because I feel like this, you know, happens, you know, you don't want to say so often, but it feels like it happens very often. But how do people cope and how should people cope? Because I feel like most people just let it go until it almost becomes numb for a, a lack of putting it a better way. Right. Well, one way is you might you might have to limit media exposure. Um, you know, I, I have not watched the trial. Um, I never even watched the video. Um, just even the, seeing a still photo was too much for me to handle um, because just that that hearing those words, I can't breathe knowing that that's what he said. That took me back to Eric Garner. I knew that I could never watch that video. Um, so you might have to know that, know that if you know you can't handle it, you have to know that you have to shut it off. You have to set boundaries with people. Um, if you don't want to talk about it, I don't want to talk about it. Don't tell me about it. I'll find out later. Um, make sure you're getting enough rest. Do things that relax you, meditation, mindfulness, prayer, journaling, deep breathing. Um, you have to pay attention to what you're using as coping skills. You know, when you're stressed out, you might tend to drink more, use more prescription pills, even eat more, you know, um, you have to pay attention to um, negative coping skills and making sure you're not using too much of those. Make sure you get enough exercise. Um, be around your more positive support system more often. And you might have to, you know, people who are negative and, and aren't feeding you, you might have to cut them off for a while. So you have to think about that as well. But I think most importantly, if you know that it's traumatic for you, it is okay to cut it off. Um, you don't have to hear all the news coverage. Is there a feeling of hopelessness as this happens over and over again? I mean, I feel like I hear people will say, yes, Derek Chauvin is on trial, but there's almost this sense of we almost feel like what's going to happen in the end of it. Mm -hmm. I, as How can people, I, I don't even want to know if, I don't know if you can even call it, reset their mindset going into these things, but it just feels like there's... There's almost a negative attitude every time this trial or any right. trial comes up. Yeah, I think there definitely is a sense of hopelessness because rarely has there been justice. I mean, we can think of so many cases where there have never been charges brought. Um, the officers have never even lost their jobs. Sometimes they've never even been suspended. So there's too many cases to name where that has happened. And then the cases where there have been charges brought, 
Um, like in Breonna Taylor's case, the charges that were brought were not for what really happened. Um, and then the rare case that there is actually sentencing, um, the sentence is light, like in the case with uh, Botham John. Um, so when when there might be a glimpse of justice, it's not what is expected. Um, so yes, there there is a lot of hopelessness because rarely do the families or the community at large get justice for these incidents that happen. Um, I think this is probably um, the rare case that there is, you know, very strong evidence and very um, good witness testimony. And it, you know, in theory, it looks like there should be a, a good outcome, but there's so much skepticism because there has never been a good outcome in the past. And I, um, it's, I think people want to be hopeful, but at the same time, they don't want to be disappointed like there has been so many times. And I'm guessing this probably feeds back into your prior answer about having to, uh, how to deal with that hopelessness or how to overcome that hopelessness where you just have to, you know, do what, if you pray, you pray, if you journal, you journal and so on. Right. Yes. Um, and, and I think you, you don't want to give up hope. <laughs> um, you, you want to hope that, um, you know, there is a jury who will listen to the evidence and, and really weigh it and pay attention to what really happened and be compelled by the juror testimony and the medical testimony that has been very compelling. Um, but at the same time, having that hope and being disappointed is very difficult because that's happened so many times. So it's, um, yeah, you, you just have to use a lot of self-care <laughs> during, during this trial. Uh, talking about it. You know, people say you should talk about your feelings, but particularly, you know, in our climate, you know, there's young kids who see this. But right. at the same time, people's lived experience, whether you're black or white, I'm a black male, you being a black female, we have friends who are white and in different races. Talking about it is different in so many levels because of their own experiences growing up or what they've been um, introduced to growing up. So I guess, how should people talk about it? And if your family is different than other families, how should you approach it uh, with your own kids, even though you might live somewhere else where things like this might not be happening? Right. Well, I think for, for most Black families, you know, we've had these conversations before, probably every time it happens. Um, I, I remember probably the first time having this conversation with my sons was with Trayvon Martin. And I think at the time, my youngest son was maybe five or six. Um, when I had to have the talk, you know, with him. Um, and so we, you know, a lot of people have already had these conversations numerous times with our kids. Um, but for those who have not had the conversation, um, a lot of black families have to have a conversation, you know, what do you do when you encounter the police? You know, the do's and don'ts of police encounters. Um, recognizing that you might go into the store and you might get followed for no reason. Um, you might be doing everyday daily activities and someone might say that you're suspicious. Um, you could, you know, get accepted to a college or get a job and someone might say you just got that job because you're a minority. Uh, you have to, you know, work harder to get the same things that other people get, um, you know, things of that nature. Um, for other families, um, I think in particular white families, I think it's very important to explain that, you know, 
these things usually do not all, all the time, but do not happen to us as frequently as they happen to people of color and why. Um, there is something called white privilege and explain what that is and what that entails. Um, that, you know, people are treated differently because of the color of their skin, why that isn't right, why that's unfair and what you can do to be an ally to people who are treated differently because of the color of their skin. Um, I think regarding this current um, trial in particular, um, if your children are having questions about it, first of all, you wanna ask them, what do they already know? Uh, where are they getting their information from? Um, what have maybe they talked to their friends about? Um, kind of clearing up any misconceptions about it, um, engaging them to express their feelings about it. With younger kids, you want to be kind of simple. <laughs> you know, you probably don't want to go into too much detail with younger kids. With teenagers, they probably know everything already. Most of them are on social media. Um, and with teenagers, they're very opinionated, they're very informed, and you have to be willing, I think, to also um, being ready to engage in kind of healthy debate because it's very likely that you might have a differing opinion than they do about it. And you have to be willing to um, know that they might want to debate about it and discuss it um, and be able to do that with them without it turning into an argument to know that they can talk to you about it, even if they don't agree with you. It's such a great point you bring up about discussing it with your teenagers, but even beyond that, discussing it adult to adult, how should people go about setting themselves up for success in a for a positive conversation because you, you know back in november you know there was always talk about the thanksgiving table don't don't bring politics home because you never know whose aunt or uncle no matter which side they might be on might right. be upset with that talk so how can you know with this type of coverage and these type of events how do people set themselves up for success to learn in a proper way so they can overcome trauma so they can understand the trauma that other people who may not look like them have Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's being very aware that this is traumatic and why. Um, I think it should be very apparent why it is, but if it's not apparent to you, if you have friends of, who are different than you, um, asking them, you know, why is this so hard? Can you tell me about it? At, at the same time, it's not necessarily their job to educate you. However, it's okay to ask, you know, I want to know why you're hurting. Can you tell me and what can I do to help? You know, I want to understand um, so that that's a little bit different than educating you're, you're being empathic, um, and you want to know how you can help your friend. So I think that's a little bit different than making your friend, your educator, um, because some things you, you have to learn on your own. It's not necessarily, um, people's job to educate you about, um, black history and, and systemic racism and those kinds of things. Those are some things that it's okay to educate yourself, but if you want to know if your friend is okay and why, um, they're having such a rough time, it's okay to ask them about that. And I don't think people should shy away from those conversations either. So to kind of close uh, this part of our conversation, your medical perspective, I don't know if you've seen patients who've come in and mentioned, you know, this is affecting me yes. you know, as far as these topics. I guess, I, you know, I guess um, from, from obviously, you know, keeping your patients, um, you know, anonymous, of course, I guess, what, what are they saying to you? What Give us a peek behind the curtain of what they come in, for, I guess, from the first phone call or from the Zoom call, if they're even sitting in your office. So I guess what what kind of conversations are being had and what kind of uh, progress have have they made, if, if any, trying to get through these uh, hard times? 
And so the the difficulty, of course, is, you know, when all of this happened, well, of course, it's not just this incident, but but I think the George Floyd incident has probably was probably the most difficult for a lot of people. And because it happened in the midst of the pan, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so a lot of people are already struggling because we're in the midst of COVID-19. And, you know, that disproportionately impacts black communities and other community communities of color. So some people had family members who were sick, maybe some family members who died from COVID-19. They might have been laid off, lost their jobs. You know, they're having to homeschool their kids. So they're dealing with all of those changes from the pandemic. And then on top of that, then there's all of this racial unrest and trauma. Um, so there's kind of two big traumas going on at the same time. Um, so it's, it's that combination of things that, that led, I think, a lot of people to seek treatment. Um, and because I guess the positive thing about the pandemic is that a lot of mental health services are more readily available via telehealth. So being able to get mental health services in your home reduces the stigma of getting mental health services. So that has made it um, easier for people um, to seek treatment and makes people more likely to seek treatment when it's in your house and people don't necessarily have to know that you're getting treatment. It makes it a lot easier. Um, but yes, people have, um, you know, a lot of people have PTSD symptoms because of it and they've come in because of that. Um, symptoms of depression, they're not sleeping, they can't concentrate at work. Um, those are some of the reasons that people have come in. Um, they just are not functioning at their usual level. Um, and they realize that it's something that's not improving. And, you know, I, I really need to do something about this. And again, because of the stigma has decreased um, and recognizing a lot of their family members are struggling with it as well, um, they're more willing to get help so that not only can they help themselves, but they can be of help to their family too. Dr. Danielle Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on the Beyond the Studio podcast. Uh, before we go, for somebody out there listening uh, who wants to get help, uh, where where can they call to uh, get some help and uh, hopefully uh, move past this uh, point in their life? So at the Linder Center of Hope, we are at, are at 513-536-HOPE, H-O-P-E, or 4673 is where we can be reached. Dr. Danielle Johnson, thank you so much again. We appreciate it. Thank you. If you're looking to get help, we have more links and phone numbers down in the show notes. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. This has been WLWT News 5 Beyond the Studio. I'm Stephen Albritton. Thanks for listening.